been a great uh, treat for Mary Nell and I to be here this special weekend and to get a picture uh, of the past as well as the present and uh, the future that we are involved in praying for and uh, working towards. I don't want to take much time by way of introduction. We've got uh, uh, a lengthy text that I'm going to move through very rapidly uh, so that we can get to some application that I think fits well with the day. Uh, uh, just one thing that next week, uh, if you were here uh, three Sundays ago, my first Sunday when we dug into the beginning of our series on Providence in Genesis 37 through uh, 50, uh, we will get back to that uh, next Sunday to what is uh, for many the missing chapter in Genesis. Uh, and I'll explain a little more, more uh, what I mean about that. Uh, a lot of people aren't as familiar with it. It often is skipped in readings through the book. Uh, publicly, it is the story of Judah and Tamar, uh, and it uh, actually, when you put it in its context, not our 21st century context, it makes a whole lot more sense. Surprise, surprise, God knew what he was doing with it, and I think you will come away with some uh, understanding that will help you understand how amazing God's providence is, even in ways that you haven't thought about. That being said, let's pray. Father, thank you for this church, your church. Uh, you called it together. You called the people together to start it. Uh, you have called the people here and given the gifts and the people with the gifts uh, to do the work. We cry out to you as the always inadequate ones uh, to keep doing what only you can do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A quick setting of context that I think will help you understand uh, what Luke 15, a very familiar chapter, uh, what it's really about in its context. When I was in my last year at Northwestern University in Chicago, and during the last part of that year, already on full-time crew staff, I had the privilege of going with four or five other students involved in our ministry uh, to the Mars lectureship that year. The Mars Candy Company, the Goldman family that started uh, the Hillel Ministries on the colleges and universities around the country, put on a special concert or lecture each year. And that year there were about 500 uh, people crammed into a meeting room in the Alice Millar Chapel at Northwestern University. And you need to know a little bit of the context very quickly. This was the Vietnam War years. Uh, tremendous turmoil in the country, tremendous turmoil on the campus, students crying out for autonomy. It was the birth of the birth control pill, uh, which radically changed things uh, that we're still seeing the fruit of. And so uh, the Goldman family invited a rabbi professor from one of the prominent New York City universities, a philosopher and an ethicist, to address the subject of what in the world do we do in a time when everything is going topsy-turvy. And we're seeing the fruit of that in full bloom uh, now, these several decades later. And the rabbi uh, gave his uh, lecture from secular sources, from the Jewish Torah, the scripture, and made a case that we cannot get back, how much more true now, this is 1969, 68, 
that we can't get back to the best of the classical traditions and the morality that we know has worked so well in so many ways simply try by trying to take back the culture. We can't just try to enforce morality and preach law and commandment. And his alternate strategy only hinted at the attitudes that we might adopt to win the influence and affection of rising generations for the more healthy and proven standards that were now being abandoned. It was a fascinating lecture. But when he ended, because the topic was so prescient and on the hearts of people, uh, there was dead silence in the question and answer time. 500 people just sitting there not knowing what to say or what to ask. And one of the students in our group of five or six dared to stand up and basically asked uh, the question, is the attitude that you are encouraging us to have the same attitude that Israel's God showed to his people? And you could see the excitement of the professor that somebody in the audience had actually been listening and saying about Israel's God, forbearing over long periods, guiding, disciplining them, even painfully as necessary, but also loving Israel with a covenant love in spite of their rebellion and working his covenant promises through his providence over time. And the professor almost got excited. Uh, and it was an academic lecture, so you don't see a lot of that. So the student sat down, silence again, and no more questions. We were sitting right behind the Goldman granddaughter of the family that started uh, all of these businesses and ministries. And uh, our student in our group dared to stand one more time. And this was the question that was asked. Sir, would you agree that no human being has ever so well acted out that attitude towards his people and his disciples as did the rabbi Jesus from Nazareth? The air in the room just went electric that anyone would even dare mention the name Jesus. And this Ph.D. bright scholar looked down for what seemed like 30 seconds or more. It probably wasn't quite that long. But dared to look up and look that young man in the eye and said, Yes, I would have to agree that that is true. Isn't that amazing? That's why our title for this morning in looking at Luke 15 is Show Us the Father. Because that's what Jesus does. He shows us in a way that flows out of human life that is both human and divine what our divine God is really like. And despite all that the church has to ask forgiveness for from the Jewish people, to this learned professor, it was obvious that Jesus shows us the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob better than anybody else ever has. Think of John 14, 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. In other words, Philip wanted to know, what is God really like? 
you remember Jesus' answer? Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Wow, what a zinger to one of the disciples. So I want to say to you this morning that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and if you are finding your life in Jesus Christ, we will sing after communion in Christ alone. If, if your life truly is being found in Christ alone and you're learning more of the fullness of it, you are seeing the Father. You have the Father's divine life flowing through. So now let's dig quickly into our text. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You file this under like father, unlike sons, because the Pharisees and the scribes, the biblical lawyers, the seminary professors of the day, are not in sync with the father. And they are basically saying, that they can't believe that Jesus is from God because, after all, look at who is attracted to him and look at with whom he gladly spends time. Sinners, the worst of sinners, tax gatherers who work for the Romans and, and, and rob the people with their taxes. Clearly this man can't be from God. I can think of no way to explain what's going on better than simply to read without much exposition a text that Jesus knew well from Ezekiel chapter 34. If you're taking notes, just jot down Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel wrote this, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And the Pharisees and the scribes are the shepherds of Israel. And say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill." My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. You make the applications about when leaders and shepherds of the church are truly God's shepherds and when they're too much in it for themselves. The Pharisees and the scribes are blind to what God is really like. It's hard not to believe that Jesus, Luke 2, has this Ezekiel 34 passage in mind when he rebukes them. 
because their conclusion is Jesus can't be from God because he shepherds sinners and eats with them. That's the context of this chapter. That's the context in which Jesus is ministering. Second section, very quickly, verses 3 through 7. Here we have like father, like shepherd. Note well that while Ezekiel 34 applies, uh, applied by Jesus, he's not being too harsh here to the Pharisees. What does Jesus do? He gives the Pharisees and the scribes another chance. He says, listen, think with me for a minute. So, for this reason, he told them this parable, verse 3. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus interprets it. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What's Jesus saying? He's saying a very simple thing. Shepherds care about sheep. And in the parable, he makes it so clear, the narrator takes care of the 90 and 9. We're not really concerned about that in the parable. But the shepherd so loves the sheep that when one is lost, he goes away from the others for a time and does everything he can do to find that one that's lost and, and bring him back. And the next verses in Ezekiel uh, tell us still more of what's going on and state to us what God is like. Ezekiel 34, beginning with verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, this is what God says, behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. If you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it, God says through Ezekiel. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Psalm 23 ringing in your ears. I will seek the lost and will bring them back, bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddled with your feet? Instead of calling out to the shepherds, God is rebuking the other sheep who take advantage because they've got more and more power in the church. And they take more and they mess things up for the rest of the flock. I won't read it all, but if you're taking notes, John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
such gentle but firm rebukes to the Pharisees, the scribes. In verse 5, he puts the lamb that he goes to find on his shoulders, often when a lamb has gone astray from the place of plenty. When he's gone away from the table of the Lord where food that gives life is found, is weak, and he's so weak that the shepherd loves him so much that he hoists the sheep over his shoulders and wraps his arms around him and carries him back to the fold. Oh, what a picture of how we are to shepherd one another and to shepherd the hurting and the dirty and those to us who smell in all the various ways that we hold up our noses to others. Like father, like daughter, verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And some thinks that because Jesus' ministry was so often around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. I talked last week uh, in the great boat ride sermon about uh, the heights of Arbel and Mount Hermon and the ravines. There's a lot of basalt, volcanic stone where the stones are round. And if you can picture a floor of rounded stones where the sand fills in in between and you drop a small coin and it gets down in those crevices uh, in the sand, it's a lot of sweeping and a lot of work to find that coin. But to the woman, this coin is important. And the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking, yeah, that's a, uh, those are ten drachmas that she's got. If she loses one, she wants it. Some thinks it was in a, uh, think it was in a piece of jewelry. Daryl Bach, uh, in a commentary, writes these words. We should be like raiders in search of great treasure. Only the treasure we seek are the lost souls of vulnerable sheep. The search is not always easy, but the joy at the end makes the effort worth the cost. Believers should be engaging the lost in meaningful relationships. Often in the church, however, I see the opposite. We withdraw from the multitudes for fear of compromising our testimony. As a result, there's no one around us to testify to. Evangelism requires time and energy like the shepherds and the women's search in order to capture the lost. Some searches even take years, but our Lord calls us to get out among the people and build the relationships that allow us to draw others to God. A few of you may know the work of Professor Jerome Bars, who worked with Francis Schaeffer in England and came to faith after almost committing suicide. He had Marxist parents, and his story is a marvelous story, but we had him to the church I served in Tulsa twice, and one of the things that he drove home to our elders and our leaders about 2005, he said, at this point in England, it is... It is a 10-year process from when a non-believer has his first contacts with really vital Christians before they convert to becoming disciples of Christ. And I fully believe that in the U.S., he said in 2005, it's already a five-year process. The days when people are prepared enough by being around Christian community to see the goodness of the Lord and the tasting of the good things of God uh, is far from so many, and it takes time. Doug and Masha Shepard uh, 
missionaries our church in Tulsa supported for a lot of years. Uh, Masha is Ukrainian, and they say one of the biggest ways for evangelism they had when they were first in Ukraine was living in these small apartments and apartment houses uh, uh, in Kiev and, and then in Lviv, uh, Odessa. And all of a sudden they started inviting people for, over for dinner and people realized their marriage was so different. And it wasn't that their marriage was perfect. Uh, if you knew Doug and you knew Masha, they are both rather feisty. And, and they could set one another off, but the way they dealt with one another after they set one another off, the immediate turning of respect and humility towards one another, the other Ukrainians around them, they'd never seen anything like this. They'd never seen marriage valued as something that was sacramental and, and pointed to something. Friendship and marriage and how we deal with one another is part of seeking other sheep if we let them come watch, if we dare to let them come near. Luke 15, 11, the longest section, got to move fast. Like father, unlike sons. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. Don't miss that. Most parables have been called by the church by the opening line. I have never heard of the parable of the father who had two sons. And literally in the Greek, the text says, a certain man was having two sons. I think the perfect tense shows something of the flavor of the parable. A certain man was having two sons. I mean, they were long ago born. But how are they going to turn out? Well, let's read the parable and see. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Which is a nice way of saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I'm not the firstborn, so I only get one-third, so can you put the assets together and give me my third as if you were dead. Jesus is telling an extreme parable. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. The father did it and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the children, citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. This is a nice Jewish boy, and he's working among the pigs. And no one was giving him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I mean, heaven did say, Honor your father and mother. To wish your father dead is not exactly doing that. I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am not worthy to be called your son. But the father said, he stopped him, said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. I thought he was dead. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
you're a father who loves your son and you found out he's not dead, are you going to throw a party? Is your heart going to be full of joy? Is, is all of a sudden everything else you've ever done or gained going to seem less in your eyes because now the son that you loved and was lost and you despaired over his despicable behavior and choices and, and he's back and he's humbled. Verse 25, now his older son, a certain man was having two sons. His older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, the servant, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. The happiest party of this man's life is going on and the older son won't even step foot across the threshold into the house. And the father turned in angry, anger at him and yelled at him. Is that what the text says? you're following along, you know that I'm kidding. The text says the most amazing thing. His father came out and entreated him. The father went out onto the hillside and ran out to the prodigal. And now the father is leaving the party of his life, celebrating his son who's alive again to him. And he goes out again to the older son. You see that this is a parable about the father who had two sons. And it's a parable about Jesus, who is like the Father. It's a parable for the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as the prodigals amongst us, to say, do I party about the right things? You know, how's my value system doing? But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, when this son of yours, don't you love that phrase, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And I'm not sure we're not like Joseph and his older brothers. We'll get back there uh, in Genesis when uh, you know, they're afraid Joseph is going to get the first inheritance. You know, now this older brother is thinking, you gave him his third already, but if you're having a party because he's back, you're probably going to give him another third out of my two-thirds. And when you die, I'm going to get even less. I don't like this party. And he said to him, the father, but the, when he, your son came, he devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We don't have time to go into it, but sometimes it's interesting to do a word count in a passage. The key words in this passage, father, 11 times, lost, eight times, found or find, eight times, rejoicing, be glad, joy, rejoice, six times, celebrate, four times. Those are the key words. They tell you what the passage is about. At least two things have been wrong very quickly out of the, and out of balance as the church has interpreted this parable. I've really said this already. Uh, the one is that we, don't, we miss the context that Jesus can't be from God because he's not like God because God is not like this. And the whole chapter is about saying, uh, have you read Ezekiel? Have you read the scripture? 
when you say God is not like this? It's reminiscent of Jonah who doesn't want God to be a forgiving God, so he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. God, I told you if I went to Nineveh and told them they were going to die, you'd turn around and forgive them. And Jonah goes out and sulks like the older brother. It's Israel, the Jewish nation, God's son, who cluttered the court of the Gentiles, the place where God-fearing outsiders could come near to the Holy of Holies, the biggest part of the temple, and they took advantage taking money changers in, and no wonder God judged Israel for that. Secondly, in interpreting this this parable, we haven't taken our clues from the structure. A certain man, two sons. The most dialogue is with the older brother. We ought to figure that's pretty important, and that's where it ends. It's not so much about the prodigal, except that we need to go after prodigals. It's about us stiff-necked folks that don't want to go after prodigals because we're so much better than they. And why should we have to sacrifice when we've been faithful to go after them when they've been unfaithful? And when it ends, it's on the heart of the father again. The younger son, the father amazingly gives him what he asks and the story is just amazing Kenneth Bailey a great student of the Mideast and of the scriptures went out in the Arab villages of Lebanon and northern Israel and other places and and read them Luke 15 and the culture is still very much the same and Bailey said what would happen if a son did that if a father gave him the money and he did that uh, and he came back uh, and they said uh, The best that could happen is that he gets sent off as an uncle's estate and works like a servant for the rest of his life because he shamed his father. The worst that could happen is they stone him. And if the father wouldn't do it, the community would do it. And if you don't believe me and you're taking notes, jot down Deuteronomy 21, 18 and following. I'm not going to take the time to read it. But look at this father. The returning son finds his father old enough to have grown sons longingly looking at the horizon like a ship, sailing ship's captain's wife sitting in the widow's nest hoping that one day her house without a husband will find a captain coming home again and she'll see the ship on the horizon. And then there's the older son out faithfully serving his father and his own wealth because he's going to get the remaining two-thirds when his father dies. And he hears the music and the dancing and says, about the hears from him about the brother that's come back and the son is angry do you hear the tones of Adam and Eve Adam says to God this woman you gave me she caused my problem and the same kind of story going on here the tones of God to Cain why are you angry you know why is your face fallen the words of God to Jonah do you do well to be angry and the older son refuses to go into his father's presence and his brother's presence because he won't eat with sinners and won't celebrate with one who's been with prostitutes and pigs. And he says, you've never given me even a goat to celebrate with my friends. Brothers and sisters, what do we throw parties for? I'm so old that the days of, you know, limos along with the tuxes on high school graduations were the big thing. I have no idea what the end thing is today. Uh, in that area. You, you tell me, I won't try to tell you. But whatever we celebrate on, I'm irked at my own heart 
do we celebrate more when someone comes to Christ and when UPC put the bouquets up front when someone had come to Christ that week that we heard about last night? My heart is so touched by that. I mean, the biggest party in the world is when someone who's a rebel like David O'Dowd has the grace of God work in his or her life and stops being a rebel. And we say there's nothing we can party over that is worth partying more over than that when God does that kind of work and uses us to do it. How do we complain like older brothers that we are? Self-righteous. Make this really quick. We had a young woman come into our church in Tampa. Mary Nell remembers well. I'll call her Susie. Uh, oh, what a wild young woman. Arrested for arson in the Navy, thrown in the brig, got on drugs, cashiered out. So disturbed, she'd come to the church. She'd run out in the middle of the service when something I said or somebody else said offended her. Started coming to a class on the Westminster Confession. Some weeks she'd make it five minutes. Some weeks she'd make it 30 minutes. One Sunday I asked people to fill in the gaps. Uh, I may try this here some Sunday. And asked people to actually hold hands as we sing a song. And, uh, and she was so afraid of holding somebody's hand that uh, she literally ran out the door with anger and came in my office that week mad at me for asking her to hold hands. Agoraphobia, fear of crowds. We had three tickets. None of my kids wanted to go to the Rays baseball game, and we called Susie and said, would you go? She couldn't believe that after Mary Nell loving on her and one of the secretaries loving on her and not chasing her out of the church because she could be crude, that we privately take her to a game. We didn't even know she had agoraphobia until she said, would you take me down on the field after the game? First time she'd been in a crowd in a big place in 20 years. I was away one Sunday on our bulletin. Uh, we had a gospel presentation on the back. She found Elder Bill Ernest afterwards, and she said, how can I show, share the gospel with my par parents? And in the parents' site up in Jacksonville, she was the prodigal. Her other sister was married, had a couple of kids, was going to church. Uh, at least she was back in church. And uh, Bill showed her the back of the bulletin. Susie went to Jacksonville and led both of her parents to Christ that afternoon. But she, to most people in the church, was an outsider. How dare we? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the outsider. His cross was on the outside of the walls. He was put there to be shamed. Jesus is the older brother in this chapter. Have you picked up on that without my having to say it? It was the older brother's job, if the father was too old, to go find his younger brother. Instead, he's being smug, and when the brother comes home, he's mad. But Jesus was the son who had everything for all of eternity as the Christ of God, but who counted these things not to be grasped onto, Philippians 2, but said, I will go down to the earth and take on flesh and be made fun of and shamed for hanging out with sinners and shamed in the community for forgiving my son and loving my son. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know what God is like, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when we sing after communion in Christ alone, will you say, oh, I better be finding my life in Christ alone because I will screw it up so bad if I'm finding the life for how I deal with my spouse and my kids and my neighbors and the people that stink to me because I don't know how bad I stink, I've forgotten. I've put on so much worldly moralistic perfume that I think I'm okay. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus never spent time with anybody who didn't in many ways stink to him compared to himself? Have you ever thought about the fact that you have more in common with every non-believer than you have with Jesus, except for the fact that Jesus, in spite of what you're like, wrapped his arms around you and said, I don't care. You're the one I came to find. You're the one I took the risk. Every service, as I've watched online over the summer before getting here, the camera goes to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The way you make disciples is to show people the Father. And the way you show people the Father is to start behaving like Jesus and not like rigid saints who think that only the prodigals are raucous and reckless. We are so reckless with the resources God has given us. May we become more reckless for the kingdom. Amen.